Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Wednesday morning, the 19th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Telling lies in court intentionally is set to become a statutory offence of perjury. Currently, perjury is a common law offence and is rarely prosecuted, if ever prosecuted at all. Yesterday, the Minister for Justice said he would approve and amend a private member's bill sponsored by Senator Porrick O'Kady. Charlie Flanagan said that this is part of a package of measures dealing with insurance issues, insurance fraud and exaggerated claims. Of course, he said it'll have general application as well. It's a clear message to anyone engaged in court proceedings, giving evidence in court that they need to be mindful of the need to tell the truth. And in the event of a fraudulent claim, an exaggerated claim or evidence, then there are strong penalties involved here. Let's talk about this with Neil Macdonald, Chief Executive of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Good morning to you, Neil, and thanks for joining us. I think the Minister is correct in saying that the penalty Penalties are strong. Uh, there's fines of up to €100,000 and uh, possibly imprisonment of up to 12 months. Yes, and we're, first of all, I'd like to say we're delighted with the progress of Senator Kajig's bill uh, so far. He's at uh, stage three in the Senate. We've been campaigning for this since 2017. Uh, on its own, and don't forget there are a number of offences already on the statute book about lying in civil proceedings, but they just haven't been enforced, Michael. So the most important thing really with this uh, about codifying the offence of perjury, and we're the last common law country in the world to put the offence into law. But the most important thing about this will be to educate judges, to educate Gardaí, educate the DPP, and lawyers in court and plaintiffs about the importance of telling the truth. Otherwise, there is a codified offence. It's set down in law for the first time with severe penalties, and we really hope that that's going to be instructive in stopping people lying in court or before tribunals or commissions of inquiry. Or make it more difficult to do so, because sometimes it's impossible to tell whether somebody is lying or not. I mean, you often hear of cases of road traffic accidents, let's say, and somebody leaves the scene of the accident, it appears there's nothing wrong with them at all until they speak to somebody else and a severe case of compensation sets in. Next thing, they have a collar on their neck and they're claiming that they've whiplash. 
Yes, well, well, uh, there, there are two flavours of of what you've just outlined there, Michael. First of all, there's the the blatantly fraudulent uh, claim, in in which case there was no incident at all, and someone is saying that something happened which did not. And then there's the exaggerated claim where someone is saying uh, that an incident did occur and the fact of the incident isn't uh, disputed by either side, but one party says they were very grievously injured in that uh, when, in fact, they might have only suffered the most minor injury or or, or no injury at all. So, um, the, I suppose as things stand, though, Neil, I mean, you could have somebody who had a serious uh, case of compensation set in after they spoke to somebody and put a collar on and then are found to be down the gym or running a, a, a 10k marathon or something like that. Uh, but there's little consequence if that is the case. That will change under this new statutory uh, offence of perjury. Well, we sincerely hope it will, Michael. I mean, the the passage of legislation on its own isn't enough. I mean, there has to be a commitment uh, by the authorities, uh, uh, by the insurance companies, uh, and, you know, especially by the Gardaí and the judges uh, dealing with these cases. There does have to be a commitment to these people to, to acknowledge the fact that this type of white-collar crime is not a victimless crime. We actually do end up paying money for this. This costs us all, and it doesn't just cost us money. So you can see that the sectors that are getting the biggest squeeze now in the current insurance problem are those that are involved with children, uh, physical activity, adventure activity, uh, sporting or fi- any form of physical activity. They're the ones that are getting are, are coming under the most uh, pressure because of the either falsification or exaggeration of the kind of physical symptoms um, you describe. Yeah. But this on its own is not going to address that unless there's a cultural change, unless the authorities, the enforcement authorities in particular, acknowledge the fact that this is a serious issue and we actually have to do something about it. And then uh, there's uh, the size of uh, the awards uh, that are given to people. I think a lot of us were surprised and shocked actually as uh, the story in uh, the Daily Mail last week of a sprained finger giving uh, awards of up to €19,000. Indeed, it, it published uh, the details of uh, what is uh, available under these claims uh, through the Book of Quantum. And it would seem as though some of the payouts are very generous. They absolutely are. And just to correct you, Michael, a, sp- a sprained thumb is worth up to €21,000. I beg your pardon, <laughs> right? Yeah, my, my memory fails me. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, but the, point of the, the point of that story was... Um, to it was to illustrate what uh, uh, Justice Kern said in the Personal Injuries Commission, <clears throat> which was to say that it look we have to be honest and say the level of quantum that we pay for the most minor minor of injuries is very attractive. It does present a temptation and a come on to people uh, to sue. And so in other, and the most important uh, observation he made in, in his second and final report to the Personal Injuries Commission mm. was that level of quantum represents a serious temptation which is not going to go away until that quantum is reduced. Mm. And then the second bit, lo- the logical follow-on from that was we do also have to tackle uh, fraud- fraudulent and exaggerated claims. But quantum is is the start of this process. People don't do things 
you know, go out and go through an administrative or a legal process like initiating a pilot claim unless it's worth their while. And unfortunately, in this country, it's very much worth their while. It's, you know, 20 grand for a sore thumb mm. in net cash terms is the equivalent of, of someone who's earning over 30,000 euro per annum. Who pays it? Uh, in the in the case of you know a motoring incident, it's it's the insurer, but that that cost ultimately is borne by by drivers. Mm. A huge amount of this is borne by the state because it mm. comes to local authorities and the state claims agency. Um, that's why you're seeing things like local mm. authorities cutting down trees. It, it, well, it, I think we all pay it, don't we? I mean, I pay it in my motor insurance, I pay it in my house insurance, uh, and business pays it in its public liability insurance. Co- correct, and and, mm. and in any commercial facility, you're you're paying it in your GAA club, mm. you're you're paying it when you go down to the pub or to the restaurant, you're paying yeah. it in a hotel, you're you're actually paying this rent uh, that's going into the black hole of insurance plaintiff and lawyers. Um, well, it goes on to the cost of a hotel room because the hotel has to pay the insurance premium or the cost of your gym fees uh, because the gym has to pay its public liability insurance. Absolutely everywhere. And then mm. you pay it in non-financially when you see uh, um, schools producing no-run policies for children and mm. telling people they can't do this or do that or they can't climb trees or children in crashes can't play outdoors. So, uh, you know, we continually emphasise the point that there is a very significant non-financial cost to what's going on as well. Is it a uniquely Irish problem? Uh, it does appear to be. I mean, the really? Personal Injuries mm. Commission had a very broad remit and studied the common law jurisdictions in the world and didn't find any jurisdiction that was paying out at a level equivalent to ours. Mm. And why are we so slow to tackle this problem? Uh, well, um, it does. That's that's a very hard hard one to to answer, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. most of our members would say there does appear to be a reluctance to take on vested interests here. Um, it does appear that the Department of Justice and the Department of Finance, which are the, uh, uh, and to a lesser extent, the Department of Business and Enterprise, mm. which are the lead departments in this area, you, you know, the the size and shape of this problem has been acknowledged since we started this cost of insurance working group process back in 2016. Um you know the, the 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 large picture, the big picture parts of the problem have been sketched out, but people appear to be reluctant to take on the vested interests of the legal lobby and the insurance lobby. Do you think that we're getting there? Because as we've been discussing, uh, we'll have uh, this uh, new footing for perjury uh, it'll become a statutory offence instead of a, a common law offence and can lead uh, to these huge fines or people being imprisoned as uh, the case may be and then uh, aside from that we have uh, the Judicial Council bill which will see a panel of judges reset what it is paid out in personal injury claims. Well we hope that the Judicial Council bill will or we wait to see the publication, I understand it could be out today uh, the publication of the actual detail of that bill Uh, But we also understand that the Chief Justice wrote, uh, and this was reported in the Irish Independent there last month, Mm. we understand that the Chief Justice has said to the Minister for Justice that unless uh, proposals coming 
from the Oireachtas uh, to reduce damages unless they have a really strong legislative base then there is there will be no reason or authority for judges to depart from what the Chief Justice calls the going rate and the going rate is the stuff you saw in the Daily Mail last week so uh, we await to see the fine detail of what uh, Minister Flanagan is proposing in that uh, Judicial Council Bill but basically what the Chief Justice is saying is if if the law doesn't reset these damages downwards uh, and, and, and very strongly suggest to judges that this is the new law, then there's no reason to depart from what are the, the level of damages currently being paid. All right. Interesting stuff. We'll leave it there for the moment, Neil. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, that's Neil MacDonald, Chief Executive of ISME, the Irish Small and Medium Enterprises Association. Now, who will be the next British Prime Minister? Well, you'd have to assume it'll be the next leader of uh, the Conservative Party, and that will be Boris Johnson or Jeremy Hunt or Michael Gove or Rory Stewart or Sajid David. The five remaining candidates for the leadership of uh, the Tory party were in the BBC studio last night and they were giving different opinions on some of uh, the important issues in this leadership race, whether that had to do with tax or social care or whatever the case may be, that little subject that uh, is of great importance to all of us, Brexit. We must come out on the 31st of October because otherwise I'm afraid we face a catastrophic loss of confidence in politics. Politicians need to take their responsibilities and act maturely and soberly in the interests of democracy and of the electorate and get this thing done. If I got to the 31st of October and there was no prospect of a deal that can get us out of the EU, then I would be out. I'd leave without a deal. If there was a prospect, if we were nearly there, then I would take a bit longer. If we're almost there on October the 30th and we just need an extra couple of days to do it, Who could object to taking an extra 24 or 48 hours to get it over the line? I do respectfully disagree with Jeremy and Michael on this because we've got to learn from our mistakes. One of the mistakes we've made so far is by having this sort of flexible deadline. If you don't have a deadline, you do not concentrate minds, and that also includes the minds of our European friends. It is not going to be possible to negotiate a new deal with the European Union by the 31st of October, and that's not just something... I feel something that Nigel Farage has said and Steve Baker, who's one of Boris Johnson's supporters, says the same things. In the end, we are in a room with a door and the door is called Parliament. And I'm the only person here trying to find the key to the door. Everybody else is staring at the wall shouting, believe in Britain. But we've, we've run into that door three times already, Rory. But um, we've, got, we've got to have a different route out. We can't simply represent the same cold porridge for a fourth time and ask people to, you know, to, to say that that's, the, that's what they want. But my worry is that, Boris, if we got to October the 31st and we were so close to getting that deal over the line, would you at that point say, Michael... We're really, we're almost there. I I share, 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 Feasible. No, that's and we not a should, guarantee. And we is that your date? And, and let, me just, let me just say, let me just say that if we, if we now uh, say that uh, we have a deadline that is not a deadline, 
and we allow October the 31st to come and go as, as March came and went and April came and went, I think the public will look upon us with increasing mystification. None of us wants a no-deal outcome. We don't want a, a disorderly Brexit, which is what you're you're talking about, and that obviously would be the, the no, kind of Brexit that would damage... It's, it would uh, be perfectly OK. Sorry, those power. words were yours. Now, it would be it perfectly very, very OK, important. was what you said. I am committed that there would never be no deal. It is unnecessary, it is damaging, and it is so unnecessary and damaging, as Jeremy has said, it is not even a credible threat. You, you can't negotiate that. Jeremy is saying that he's not be happy with okay. no Brexit. We, no, I'm yes. totally <laughs> wrong. I'm, I'm, I'm we can't hear anything. Rory Stewart, we can't hear anything. We're going to get an implementation sides of the House. Rory Stewart, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Why would they sign up to that implementation period? Sorry, we can't hear. We can't hear. What is your plan, Rory, for education and children's services? The question is how are you going to fund it? That's the question. Because it's easy to make spending pledges without how you're going to fund it. I think the most important thing is when we get a new prime minister, all of us, whoever it is on this stage, we all commit now that we will unite whoever it is behind that individual and we will deliver Brexit before there's a general election. Far from united, uh, they sounded and uh, clarity on how the United Kingdom will leave uh, the European Union now. Uh, something uh, like mud. Boris Johnson, Jeremy Hunt, Michael Gove, Rory Stewart and Sajid David, the five remaining candidates in uh, the leadership for the Tory party debating that issue of Brexit with the BBC last night. Michael Reed on LMFM. 10,000 staff across uh, 38 acute hospitals, uh, the Central Mental Hospital and St. Etis Hospital in Portran will staff uh, or will strike uh, tomorrow in Two disputes, uh, support staff, uh, people working as porters, nursing aides, cleaners, laboratory aides, medical instruments and that type of support uh, will strike as well as a separate uh, strike which will involve the chefs working in uh, the hospitals and this is to do with uh, an evaluation process which has uh, deemed these workers uh, to be doing more than they would have in recent years and entitled to pay claims. Who the Irish Examiner asked today will carry out such duties tomorrow, such as transferring patients to theatre, cooking meals, delivering meals on wards and sterilising instruments for use in theatres as the staff who perform these tasks are involved in the dispute. Catherine Shanahan is writing about this and uh, Catherine Shanahan, health correspondent with the Irish Examiner, is on the line with us now. Hi, A very good morning to you, Catherine. Uh, you say that the answer to that question is unclear, which is pretty amazing at this stage in the day, isn't it? Yep. Um, I mean, I suppose there was warning sounds uh, sounds made about this potential strike last October, November during um, a SIP2 conference in Cork. Um, that money that we're talking about, that there are 10,000 people are about to go on strike on account of, was on foot of a job evaluation scheme that was promised uh, when they signed up to a previous um, public sector pay agreement, the Lansdowne Road Agreement in 2015. Um, their job evaluations, as you said, was carried out and the 6,000 of them at least were deemed to be performing duties beyond their original job descriptions. Mm. So, you know, they, they said last October, November, we're looking for this money and, you know, if it's not forthcoming, we, will, we won't be just letting it lie. So they served strike action a couple of weeks ago on the HSE and were 
I mean, up to yesterday, the HSE's advice was that, you know, they were going to be meeting with to today and that patients whose procedures may be affected on foot of the strike would be contacted by the local hospital or healthcare facility. But, I mean, that was pretty much it. And they said they'd they keep things posted on their website. But I checked their website last night and there was nothing other than that original statement. So really, it just looks like as if they're going to have to start contacting patients today, from what I can see on a 24-hour strike due to get underway tomorrow. So mm. it could get a bit messy. Well, very messy. Uh, and uh, I presume you're talking about phoning people or texting people if they can reach yeah. people, people who yeah, may be exactly. coming in for operations, people who may be uh, attending clinics and so on. Yeah, because obviously, you know, you mentioned that one of mm. the category of staff um, that would be involved in this dispute or the surgical instrument technicians. I mean, these would be people who'd be involved in sterilising uh, the instruments that are used in theatre. So if you're due to go in for a procedure and there's nobody to do that task, then who's doing it? Um, then there's stuff up in the wards like, you know, the assistants that would be bringing in meals or maybe even changing the beds. Who, who's doing that? Mm. And like, as, as Sipti have pointed out, these are kind of tasks that most of us ignore that we sort of take for granted when we're in hospital. But if they were withdrawn, everybody would notice pretty quickly. So, you know, they're pretty vital services and it is... 10,000 people, mm. so, um, you know, 38 healthcare, and, well, mainly hospitals actually affected by tomorrow's dispute. So It's hard to understand both sides of uh, the dispute uh, because uh, the trade unions say they have an agreement and they have an yeah. agreement to, to all accounts yeah. with the HSE and uh, the Department of Health. The staff are, are due these pay increases because their employer agreed to increase their pay uh, yeah. up to €3,000 in some cases. It's yeah. a package that's worth over €16 million Euro or, or thereabouts uh, and it's under the 2015 Lansdowne Road Agreement, as yeah. you say. Now, the government is saying it's a matter of interpretation uh, and it's the Department of Public Expenditure that won't fund these pay increases and they say that's the difference in how it's been interpreted. But Brendan Howland wrote the Lansdowne Agreement effectively and says that the government is betraying the staff. Yeah, well, you know, Paul Bell, the health division organiser with Stift 2, just made the point that these staff, you know, took the amelioration in pay during the hard times. They signed up to the public sector pay agreement. They signed up to it with the agreement that this job evaluation scheme would be carried out. And, you know, if first of all, that was 2015 and they had to th- threaten industrial action in 2017 before it actually got underway. Then it got underway and, you know, about 6,000 people had been assessed by 2018. But you would wonder, what was the point in them, you know, the, the commitment being given to undertake this job evaluation scheme if ultimately its recommendations were going to be ignored? Now, what the SIPTOR are saying is that the HSC and the Department of Health have acknowledged um, that, you know, they go along with the recommendations of the job evaluation scheme, but they're saying that deeper, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform are the villain of the piece, as far as they're concerned, and that they're the, they're the ones withholding the money. So I heard Pascal Donoghue on Morning Ireland this morning and he was saying, he was asked would penalties be imposed on mm. these workers and he said he didn't want to go down that road because it would inflame the situation on the day before a strike. But he's still saying, you know, they need to use the kind of dispute resolution mechanisms within the state, such as the Labour Court. And Sictor is saying, look, been there, done that, 
we want the money. Well, it was an odd response to an odd question because he was being asked if uh, the staff would be penalised uh, for yeah. breaching the Lansdowne Road Agreement. I think there's a question here uh, about the government's behaviour and if the government is breaching the Lansdowne Road Agreement. And that's, it would seem to be the view of Micheál Martin, the Fianna Fáil leader, who raised this in the Dáil yesterday, and Brandon Howland, the leader of the Labour Party, who was instrumental in uh, forming the Lansdowne Agreement. Yeah, well, I mean... I suppose, again, what Deeper are saying is that, you know, there was no commitment as to when we'd actually pay those monies under mm. the job evaluation scheme. And they indicated yesterday, according to SIP2, that it might be 2021. But, you know, they're not prepared to wait that long. They said that these workers really had been underpaid for up to a decade. Mm. And as you said yourself, they're owed something between, I think, well, they would reckon they're owed something between 1,600 and 3,100 an overall cost if you add in the chefs because the chefs had a, a separate yeah. review exercise that would be about in the region of 20 million but I suppose you know the nurses strike really earlier in the year opened the door to these kind of pay claims and the, you know the government recognised that at the time okay. um, you know if you're making an exception for one union why are you not making an exception for another union? So, so this mm. was bound to happen. Well, it, it seems inevitable that the strike will go ahead uh, tomorrow, uh, yeah. which will have uh, wide-ranging consequences uh, for many of the hospitals and how they operate, uh, and indeed those who rely on uh, their services and uh, another five days of strike action planned, but no contingency, it would seem, as yet for how the hospitals will cope tomorrow. We'll find out, obviously, in the next 24 hours, but we leave it there for the moment, and many thanks for joining us this morning. Catherine Shanahan is uh, the health correspondent for the Irish Examiner. Now, it is Wednesday morning, meaning uh, the local newspapers are out and in your news agents. We have uh, the front pages here in front of us, or at least Marie does, and uh, we'll take a look at what the papers are reporting on this week. Uh, we'll begin with uh, the Dundalk leader, which is looking at a, a very brave young person. Yes, a nice, good friend. Good news, front page story on the Dundalk leader today. Uh, they're recognising the courage of a young girl from Talonstown who's been honoured with a braver, Bravery Award because of the way she reacted to an instant when her father took a stroke. Michael Laura Brennan, now 12, but she was only nine years of age when this incident occurred in 2016. And according to her dad, John, who was born with a genetic heart condition, she showed remarkable calmness and coolness when on the phone to the emergency services and got them to him in his hour of need. So it's great that mm-hmm. she's been recognised with the Absolutely. award. Absolutely, well done, Lauren. Uh, and we'll stay in and talk. Uh, the other papers uh, there, the Argus and uh, the Democrat, both uh, leading uh, with uh, that story about uh, an attack on a young woman in the town. That's right, that mm-hmm. we were covering mm-hmm. yesterday. Mm-hmm. Another story in the Argus caught my eye, and I think this, the also on page one, will be of interest to homeowners in Loud, and that's that the Chief Executive of Loud County Council, Joan Martin, has basically put on notice that she will again seek a 15% hike in local property tax. You'll remember, Michael, she saw the similar rise last year, but members of the local authority then voted not to change it. Now she's indicated that she'd be looking for the increase to generate an additional 1.4 million income, which will be earmarked for housing, specifically maintenance. So we'll have to see how that'll pan out. All right. And uh, as I say, the Democrat yes, also leads with right. that sexual assault on that woman on the Ton Walk. What else are that's they reporting right. on? Inside mm. a story really caught my eye, and it's not a good news story because uh, according to the Democrat it's reporting that the cases of animal cruelty in the area appear to be on the rise according to the loud SP 
RCCA. It highlights three disturbing cases, including a dog found with its leg broken in a back garden, another dog found starving to death and a Rottweiler found up a mountain tied to a gate who was malnourished and had a tumour on his foot. Awful, Michael. Really, really repugnant stuff. Uh, Let's uh, go to the Drogheda Independent still covering the local elections. Yes, it's all about the power of the front page of the Drogheda Independent, Declan Power, in fact. And uh, that, again, is the story we covered regarding his controversial co-option. Michael, are we allowed to mention the C word, though? That's what I want to ask you. Please don't. Oh, yeah, are we? (laughs) No, please don't. don't. And I'm mentioning it because Mm. on page two in the Drogheda Independent, they are. There's a story about a new Christmas festival for Drogheda, which will run over three days in December. So watch out for details for that. I know Maggie here in studio is overjoyed because she's a real Christmas person. All right, very good. Uh, We'll uh, finish in Meath and uh, the Meath Chronicle looking at uh, what is a a national issue from uh, a very local perspective. That's right. The plight of a homeless Navin family makes the front page of the Meath Chronicle today. The paper's reporting that the family of four, including two young children aged 18 months and three months, have been squatting in a vacant house in Winetown for the past week because they're desperate and have nowhere else to go, they say. The couple who are expecting another child claim that the council-owned house had been vacant for some time. However, the council is saying that a legal occupation like this deprives social housing applicants who are due to be offered a house of having their housing needs met. A spokesperson also said that the house has only been vacant since, since last month. The couple moved in last Tuesday claiming they did it out of sheer desperation. Okay, there are the stories making uh, the front pages of uh, the local papers this week and uh, very interesting stories at that. Perhaps uh, you'd like to make comment on them. Uh, Marie is uh, taking calls now, I think, uh, and you'll be back uh, with some of the comments uh, around 10 o'clock. So if you'd like to comment on those stories, something else you've been hearing, or if there's an issue that you'd like to raise with us on the programme, you can ring Marie or Maggie today and our telephone number is 185715958. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. As you know, a 14-year-old girl, Anna Creasel, was murdered in Lucan just over a year ago by two boys who were 13 at the time. Yesterday, the two boys, now aged 14, were found guilty of her murder. The jury found one of the boys guilty of murdering Anna Creasel by causing severe and extensive injuries to her head and neck. The same boy was also convicted of violently sexually assaulting her. The second boy was found guilty of luring the schoolgirl from her home, knowing what was going to happen to her and watching the assaults and then covering up afterwards. Uh, Let's uh, talk about what has been a disturbing trial for those of us watching from very far away, let alone those who are directly involved with Nolene Blackwell, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. Good morning to you, Nolene, and uh, thanks morning, for Michael. joining us. Uh, what are your thoughts this morning following on from what has captivated uh, the country, indeed shocked the country, I think? Yeah, I think that's right. So just a couple of things to say. Both boys had pleaded not guilty and they were convicted by the jury. But an appeal is possible and uh, you would have to say it is possibly likely as well. So we may not be at the end of the court proceedings yet. And indeed, we certainly are not because the sentencing still has to come about. But this is a very difficult case for everybody to process. And I suppose from our point of view, working with the victims of sexual abuse and rape on a regular basis, 
the the standout thing is how how important it is going to be to to recognize that actually children are living in a very different and difficult world mm. right now that i mean there there are from time to time um child murders there there are children murdered regularly mm. and there are children who commit murders but the evidence around this, the evidence around Anna's life as a tall, good-looking um, young girl who had just left sixth class, is that she was being seen as a sexual object, um, and the and the and the murder as it happened was so associated with um, sexual imagery and with sexual violence and with the objectification of that young, young girl, uh, that, that we, we, we say it regularly, but something like, like this, which is so rare and which won't be happening in, you know, in most children's minds and the rest of it, nonetheless, what children are exposed to, the level at which uh, children are starting to objectify yeah. young girls as sex objects has to be a matter of concern for us as a society. And I'd go further and I'd say they're not getting that just from porn. They're getting it from a society that that isn't respecting young girls, that mm. is treating them as sex objects as well, so that we all have work to do to make a, a better society. It won't stop severe harm happening from time to time but just we are shown a whole new world right now of the of how young people have access to horrific material. And what we and didn't hear during the trial was how Gardy found two phones in the bedroom of the boy that became known as Boy A. 12,000 images they said were discovered on these phones and the vast majority of them were pornographic uh, images uh, that uh, there were searches for child porn, searches for animal porn, horse porn, dark web and dead boy prank in abandoned haunted school. Uh, the prosecution suggested uh, that this showed uh, an attitude that the boy had towards consent. Yeah. And so in relation to this particular case, it's going to be very hard to say because that evidence was excluded from the trial mm. as not being relevant to the trial itself. But that, that it is there, we now know. Uh, and, and so therefore, that a 13-year-old boy, which is what he was at the time, had access to that kind of really deep, dark, um, pornography is a worry and is a worry that we can only do a certain amount about. And so just in, in terms of wh- what to do with it, how to process it, mm. to, I think it's really important for everybody to understand now mm. that actually children do have access to this. We hear regularly about the kind of language that children use, uh, which is wh- wh- which is horrific, and, and the, you know this is this is not a matter of anything other than they are somewhere hearing the language, they are sharing the language, they are sharing the imagery. This is what young people are up against at a time where many many of them have no alternative vision of what a girl is or what sex is or or what is right and what respect is, mm. and 
I mean, in a sense, just I, I feel so, so sorry for everybody involved in that case. And how many um, people are there involved? My God, it, it really yeah. is hard to believe, isn't it? When you think of uh, Anna's parents, uh, the boy's parents, uh, yes. and all of the people relating to them, and all of the children in the school, and the teachers, yes. neighbours, and so on. I mean, this yes. really stretches far and wide. It stretches far and wide, and I'd go further, and mm. I would say the, the, the guards and the prosecutors, mm, course, the jurors, yeah. We had to listen to mm. all of that as well. For, so for us, as you say, who are mm. long distance away, Michael, mm. you and me just yeah. picking it up as we're going along, it is horrific. For them, just the, the need to understand that this is something that's very hard to process. And it's good it remains shocking. At least we're mm. shocked by it. Yeah. That, is, that is something. It, a, a, it a is of, horrific. I think a lot of people will have a, a, a lot to reflect on and maybe all of us should reflect on some of the issues uh, that have come uh, about uh, as a result of uh, this terrible, terrible loss of a, a tragic, young, innocent life, it, it would seem. Uh, and yes. Somebody, though, who was bullied, uh, it would seem relentlessly, according to her mother in school. Uh, and there's questions there for the young people, for the teachers, uh, and uh, for all of us in terms of what young people are, are looking at on their phones, as we've often discussed before as well, Nolene. Yeah, and I, I, and I think because these things will happen and because some children will be vulnerable in one way or another and some children will not, they, you know, they'll just, they will just have those vulnerabilities. Mm. Really what's going to be important, first of all, is that if children are um, bullied or in trouble that they have access to the resources that they need and it looks like young Anna was given all the resources loving parents could ever give her in order to cope with what she was putting up with. But there is something as well then about presenting something that's different. This 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 business where where we we think children are just innocent, that we think our own children are the best in the world, and uh, that we don't confront lack of respect, uh, that we recognize or or that we allow uh, children to um to 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 not have access to a better vision to a different vision something that stops you doing these things i mean look i think for for mm. the most part when you grow up what what stops you doing a lot of bad things is an understanding of the bigger picture mm. when you're a young teen you don't have that understanding so it behoves all of us in society to give them that that better picture but also i think for all of us the truth is porn is there because people will pay for it because people will allow will look at other human beings being put in positions uh, that are that are disrespectful, that are wrong, just for uh, their own gratification of somebody who is a human being. So I think we have. Uh, still to have quite a conversation about how women are still regarded as sex objects and young girls are regarded as sex objects. Child sexual mm. abuse has to be the, the most mm. violent and heinous of harms and crimes that are done. And still it happens regularly and still it is taking place in families and in small groups where it's known about. And we, we actually have to work hard at it okay. to, to make sure. And, and also, I think, Michael, the other thing that's going to happen out of this is a lot of people are going to be very upset mm. 
not because it happened to them directly no. or even that they're involved in this trial, but that it brings back memories. And you're very good always at reminding people there are resources out there. And there are helplines available to people who want to talk, who are just in some way especially upset by this and who feel that, that somebody of could course. help. Of and you'll give out the phone number, I know, at the end of oh, this. Oh, absolutely, yes. And unfortunately, our, our time has run out. So if uh, somebody listening to us is looking for advice, help or counselling for that matter, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre has a 24-hour helpline, 1-800-77-8888. Nolene, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Nolene Blackwell is the Chief Executive Officer of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre and that number again is 1-800-77-8... I beg your pardon, um, my screen... It's 1-800-77-8888. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Some response to the interview at the top of the programme with Neil MacDonald of Ismay in relation to the perjury laws. Obviously swearing under oath, says Marie from Drogheda, doesn't mean anything anymore Mm. when you put your hand on the Bible and make the oath. Uh, that's probably why they need to bring in this law. But will it stop people from lying? Well, I don't know. And I suppose that's uh, the big question. Uh, I must admit uh, that I'd have uh, been of uh, the same view, that I would have thought that it was a serious offence to lie in court. Yes. Uh, obviously not one that has been taken seriously. Uh, and uh, the promise now is uh, that that will change and it'll become a statutory offence with big fines yes. and the possibility of imprisonment. Sean says, uh, Sean from Dundalk, about time, the law was introduced. Too many people are bringing false claims to the court. People uh, don't face any punishment. And mm. I think when fines are introduced, it might make people think twice Maybe because so. if they're caught mm. out, they'd be punished. That's it. Kieran, listening into the conversation at the moment, this perjury law, I'm wondering, does that mean that politicians that might make false expenses claims, will that affect them? Will that cut this out, I wonder? <laughs> I don't know if that's ever happened, uh, but uh, I think this uh, relates only to court cases. It's being extended. Uh, the original private member's bill uh, was uh, to do with uh, statements made in court. Uh, the minister says he's mm. going to extend that uh, to tribunals of inquiry and other official hearings like that. OK, Joanne says, glad to see the government taking steps towards tackling insurance fraud, but... I feel, Michael, they also need to be looking at insurance premiums and how they can be increased for no apparent reason. Who is controlling all of this? It seems to me that the insurance companies are a law unto themselves and it's this that people want stopped. Mm. Well, I think that's part of the objective. They say that one of the reasons the premiums are increasing is because the claims have to be paid out and that's how they get the money to pay the claims. They get it from you. You're paying for uh, these false claims if they are false. Okay, Michael, the prime the, the election of the new prime minister in in, mm. in the UK. Uh, we had a couple of responses to the clip that you played. I despair listening to that mm, clip, Michael. Mm, mm. Says Patsy, they are all over the place. How are they going to deliver Brexit? when they can't agree on anything. Yeah, they well, still can't. Yeah, the five leading figures in the Conservative Party are completely at odds with each other. Um, uh, Margaret says, this process to replace Theresa May, Michael, it's so long drawn. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On out. Uh, how long do we have to wait before it actually goes to a vote and it's down to the last two? Yeah, that's what happens, mm, isn't it? Yeah. It goes to the vote of the whole mm. the whole party. Now it's just the cabinet. Is, is that correct? Yeah. Uh, so I suppose a lot more do we have to wait? Mm, well, I, I think next month, next I think they're expecting it. it. Yeah, yeah. They'd yeah, have a few debates and then there'll be another vote and then another vote. There's yeah. five left standing mm-hmm, yeah. at the moment. And eventually they say it'll be Boris Johnson and one other. I know, I used to mm. admire... British politics at one stage okay. but uh, mm. that admiration is slowly fading Michael okay. mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, then moving then just to I suppose more serious matters of your interview there with Nolan Blackwell because mm. we had some mm. comment mm. to that uh, Elizabeth from Navin says Michael I felt so upset all day yesterday listening to the coverage of that story poor Anna and what she went through how can this happen? She was so beautiful, yet was so isolated, probably because of that beauty and that she was a little different. The pain her parents must be in to think of all she went through and then to have her life taken in such a violent manner. It's just horrific. Mm. I hope they get some shred of comfort that the two responsible were found guilty and will be punished for what they did. Okay, yeah, well, the court reports say uh, that uh, the parents uh, stood up afterwards and uh, embraced the guardie and thanked them on a job well done. Um, another listener, didn't want to give her name, but says you, you spoke about bullying, Michael, during your interview. Yep. The, the fact is that there are lots of people today being bullied. Young people, mm. older people, and it seems to be something that's on the rise. Schools, people may complain about schools. Many schools have policies and there's only so much that schools can do. Mm. 
that it really is a tough situation when you find yourself in it with one of your children. Okay. So if I can go then just to the hospital strike, Michael. Yes. Hmm. Um, we had a call in from Patrick and Patrick is just wondering why when the HSE knew that this strike was possibly going ahead, there wasn't hmm. better plans put in place that people don't seem to know what's happening tomorrow. Yeah. Well, Very little hmm. information. Yeah, well, it seems to be a, a bit of a, a problem in uh, the government uh, communicating with itself if the left hand is talking to the right hand kind of thing uh, because the HSE and the Department of Health appear to all accounts to have a, a deal with uh, the 10,000 workers and uh, the trade union involved in this dispute, uh, sip to, but the Department of Public Expenditure is refusing to fund mm. Uh, the pay increases that are due to them under what the government has agreed. Now, it's an issue that was raised in the Dáil, as we mentioned earlier on in the programme, and perhaps how we can hear just a little bit of uh, that debate uh, and how it was raised by the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party, Micheál Martin. As I say, this goes back to the 2015 Lansdowne um, Agreement, uh, and the job evaluation process is an independent one. The HSE made a decision to grant the pay awards in 2016, uh, the government has refused to make the awards. Payments range from about 1600 uh, to £2,200 um, a year. It seems to me, Taoiseach, that no satisfactory explanation has been given by government for foot-dragging on this issue. And surely you would agree now that it's imperative that this strike be averted at all costs. Well, not at all costs, obviously, in terms of the issues, but in terms of the agreed process. And given that the WRC have already uh, adjudicated on this, uh, surely it's time for the government to re-engage and honour its commitments. Because you have said repeatedly here in the past that you honour agreements made uh, by the uh, industrial relations machinery um, of the state. My understanding is the government is putting a condition on its referral to the Labour Court, which is unacceptable. I would ask you to remove all of those conditions uh, and to allow the full utilisation of the industrial relations machinery uh, to get this dispute resolved and prevented on Thursday and to make sure that these workers get what they were promised by government over four years ago. Michal Martin, the leader of uh, the Fianna Fáil party, talking in uh, advance of uh, this planned strike action by some 10,000 HSE employees uh, tomorrow. As he said, the dispute centres around the 2015 Lansdowne Road Agreement. This was raised by the leader of the Labour Party, Brendan Howland. This re-evaluation process was to be held before the economic crisis by agreement These matters were put into abeyance until such time as we had the capacity to pay again with the forbearance and agreement of the unions and the workers in the health service. There was clearly an understanding that once the re-evaluation of the job specs was completed that the remuneration appropriate to the new grading would apply. That was understood. So can I ask you again, because... These are are relatively low-paid workers who have accepted a series of pay agreements on on the understanding that the state would honour them. It is my judgment that the non-payment of this evaluation is a breach of what was agreed. And I would ask you uh, to intervene to ensure that trust is restored and that these workers get what they're entitled to. 
Thanks, Deputy. Um, as you'll know better than I do, there are mechanisms by which we can resolve these disputes and mechanisms by which these disputes are resolved. Um, talks took place at the Workplace Relations Commission yesterday. Uh, they adjourned at 7 o'clock without an agreement. And the option is there now to go to the Labour Court to have this um, uh, decided uh, and finalised. Uh, and that is um, what I'm suggesting is the next step forward. That is how so many disputes have been solved in the past and is how this dispute can be solved. Taoiseach Leo Vratker responding uh, to Brendan Howland, the leader of uh, the Labour Party. And of course, uh, Deputy Howland was formerly uh, the Minister for Public Expenditure, who drew up the Lansdowne Agreement and is now saying that that agreement is being breached by the current Minister for Public Expenditure and uh, that uh, the SIPTU employees are being betrayed by the government uh, who are not honouring the agreement that they have with them. Now let's uh, go back to some of uh, the calls about this. Yes, yeah. I go to final one. Jim mm-hmm. uh, on this topic says, listening into your interview with Ka- Catherine Shanahan, and I agree with what she says in relation to hospital support workers. Michael, they do such a vital job in keeping the the smooth running of the hospitals going. Uh, I feel their jobs are very valuable and often overlooked, and they do deserve to get paid appropriately. Well, I'm sure they do, uh, as everybody does. Uh, There's an agreement in place. This is the oddest thing about this dispute. Mm. Uh, Everybody's uh, agreed uh, that they're entitled to a pay increase. It's just that they're not going to pay it. Uh, And uh, Paul Bell of SIPTU told us in recent weeks uh, that uh, I think it was the HSC said to him that their work is not essential to delivering services. I think we'll find out tomorrow whether that's true or not. I think they'll be eating their words, Michael. Mm. Okay. All right, we'll finish on that. All right, thanks for that, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, our telephone number is 1850 715 Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to last week's uh, Sunday, last weekend, Sunday Times Behaviour and Attitudes uh, poll, which uh, was uh, disastrous uh, for Sinn Féin, dropping seven points uh, to 12%. It uh, came on uh, back of a disastrous European election which came on uh, the back of a disastrous uh, local election results uh, Sinn Féin losing 78 of its 159 seats and as Daniel McConnell said to us earlier in the week questions now being asked about Mary Lou Macdonald's leadership of the party let's talk about this with Imelda Munster Sinn Féin TD for Louth and a very good morning to you and uh, thanks uh, for joining us Uh, the indications are if the polls are correct that you're poised to, to lose half of your doll seats as well? Well, look, I suppose <clears throat> from our point of view, it's important, it's vital actually that Sinn Féin as a party learn the lessons of the election and we learn them quickly, you know, and find out what we've been doing wrong and to fix it. And I suppose we'll face this latest challenge between the locals and the, the Europeans in the same way that we've faced greater challenges in the past. We'll, we'll analyse all the facts and uh, which led to the result and, and we'll take the appropriate action and we'll regroup and move forward once again. Mm. And what do you think uh, would have been at the root of the problems? Well, there was a number of issues that we, you know, point to it, uh, low tar- turnout, boundary changes, and maybe we weren't just getting our message across as clear as mm. we should have been. Apparently with, it wasn't low turnout, though. I mean, this was one of the things in Daniel McConnell's article in the Irish Examiner. It was a Sinn Féin analysis of uh, the turnout in traditionally strong Sinn Féin areas, and it showed that the turnout was uh, the same, if not higher, than would have been the case in 2014. 
Well, that doesn't go with, with our analysis now. I don't, don't know um, about that, but certainly there was a low turnout um, in areas, you know, and I'm not saying that's the be-all and end-all. The, the fact is we didn't get our message across clearly and we have to, to correct that and correct it quickly. Is it the right message? Well, I mean, Sinn Féin, you know, we work hard, whether it's in local council, Europeans or in the Oireachtas, and we have all our messages, we have all our policies, uh, we have a political vision and, you know, um, we put them forward and maybe we just didn't uh, put them forward clear enough with people and maybe, mm. you know, people didn't see what we, were, what we were doing fully, like, you know, and we have to correct that and get our message out there. What is your political vision? Well, for a start, we have a political vision that, and regardless of the ups and downs of any election or elections, we'll continue to work, firstly, to deliver a united Ireland, but also a real republic with social justice and equality mm. at the core of it. You know, well, um, which, which, which political party in the country wouldn't say the same? Well, I mean, if you look at our policies in relation to the housing crisis, if you look at our policies in relation to the health crisis, mm. all of those are contrary to what the, dub, the, the gov- current government are doing and we see a way to put it right. Mm. And, you know, I don't know whether people are just so fed up with the, the way things are going, but certainly we have to, to um, tighten up our message and get it out there. So why is it you want to go into government with Fine Gael? No, well, I've never said that in my life. <laughs> I, you know, we're looking to, we certainly, if you look at it, we're, we're working hard to deliver changes that, makes the lives of all the people that we represent better and improve the lives of working, the working man and woman in this country. Um, certainly we will not, and we've always said that, we'll not go into a government for the sake of propping up any government. You know, and that's, that's a fact. And certainly I would look on Fine Gael as a, a right-wing party. Hmm. And that's so why is it you I want to go into government with a right-wing party? No, well, I, I never said that. We never hmm. said we want to go into a right-wing... You want to go into government, don't you? Well, of course we yeah. want and to go is there any party? Is there, is there any party that you'll rule out going into government with? Well, well, certainly what we will do is after the election... We is will there any party that you would rule out going into government well, with? Well, what we would favour was going in with a left... No, but is there any, any party that you'd rule out going in? Well, it's in. not up for me to say if it oh, was okay. my choice. So, I certainly so, so, wouldn't so, be in, okay. in favour of going... Well, maybe this is what's wrong. Well, maybe this is what's wrong. In what sense? In the sense that you're saying there's a right-wing party that you're not ruling out going into government with. No, I didn't say that. I said I wouldn't be in favour at all. No, but you're not ruling it out. You just said it's not up to you. Hold on, Mike. You asked me me a question, let Mm. me answer. We have always said we wouldn't go into government for the sake of being in government. We wouldn't be propping up any right-wing government. So why, so why, 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 why is it that you want to go into government with Fine Gael? No, we want, what we want to do, we have so many policies that we mm. want to see implemented that will bring about and deliver the changes that makes the lives of the people that we represent better. And you know from being in opposition that you have to be in government to do that. Mm. But our choice for government would be a left-leaning You see, you're just digging. Would agree you're with, just would digging agree and you keep digging and digging no, and digging. And until you say you're not going to go into government, that you're ruling it out, that you're ruling out going into government with Fine Gael, people are going to say, well, why do you want to go into government with Fine Gael? I would absolutely. I've said that when you asked me the, the question the first time. 
I've said under no circumstances would I favour us going into government. So is Sinn Féin ruling out? That I look at, uh, that I consider Fine Gael to be. So is Sinn Féin ruling out going into government with Fine Gael? Well, I would, I would hope that we do. I would certainly hope with the do cause, mm-hmm. that we do because we're not. What's the current party position? Well, well, as as any political party, you go before the people, get your mandate, mm-hmm. and then look at the options after you receive and your you're, mandate. And you're with open. You to forming a left wing government. You're open to going country. into government with anybody you, that you. No, could, no, we're yeah. not. We're not at all. Will you stop trying to say something that I'm not saying? Well, well, you're to get not. a headline. We're not. I'm not trying to get a not, headline. You are. We're not. No, I'm prepared teasing. I'm teasing out what's wrong with you. Up. Right. Well, mm. when I say this, then listen mm. this, yeah, then okay. please. Yeah. Okay. We are not prepared to prop up any right-wing government. We are not prepared to prop up any government for the sake of propping up a government. We are not willing to go into government at any price. Mm. We have policy Well, Finnegal doesn't consider itself to be a right-wing party. I think they call themselves Social Democrats or something like that, yeah? Yeah, Mm. yeah. yeah. Mm. I don't know where the social comes into that then. But there's certainly, uh, you know, as I've said, we'll not be propping up any government for the sake of going into mm. government. We have policies and a vision for this country and that's what we'll be looking at after mm. the next election. And we'll well, I mean, that's one of the criticisms that you face from Patrick Tobin. He said you've moved to the right, uh, that uh, you're willing to go into government with anybody uh, and you've uh, abandoned your left-wing policies. No, I have the highest respect for Pather. I always have, always have had. And, you know, he's, he's an excellent TD, Pather. But, I mean, he never said any of that when he was in the party. I never once heard him express that. And my office was next door to Pathers, you know, and we spoke on many occasions. He's never said, and he knows, he actually knows, he's, he knows that's not true. And I was disappointed mm. to hear him say that because he knows it's not true. He knows it's not true. Mm. Is Mary Lou MacDonald the real leader of Sinn Féin? Because that's been called into question as well, hasn't it? Well, in the media, uh, I think in the media, yes, and elsewhere. <laughs> Look, Mary Lou is our leader. She's a great leader. Mm. Her leadership is not in question. At a, She's it, made a few mistakes, though, hasn't she? No, no, I wouldn't have thought mm. so. Um, if you look, do you think I've the Chucky Arlaw thing was a mistake? The Chucky Ar- to say Chucky Arlaw. Mm. No, I would say that without... What about um, walking under the banner in uh, that parade in America? Was that a mistake? No. What about our interference in in, uh, the uh, appointment of a PSNI uh, constable? Well, we'd we'd know part in that, but I made it clear what my... But she she, she interfered in it, didn't she? Well, she she couldn't have interfered because there's no political interference. That, that appointment wasn't a political. You know, you know what I mean. It wasn't. Well, it nearly wasn't made by politicians. But I gave my opinion on on the appointment of Drew Harris. Oh no, no, okay. No confidence. Drew Harris, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, no, just no. In but relation to, I, I presume you're referring to the chief to the constable, to the PSNI chief constable. Chief constable, yeah. Mm. Sorry, but um, I presume you're referring when you talk about media reports and you you made reference to it at the start of the interview about. Um, the article in the the examiner. Mm. Yeah. I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, I have not witnessed any division in the parliamentary team. We remain focused on moving forward. Mm. And, I, you know, um, there's, there's, there's been nothing of that. And I genuinely say that to you. And I was actually bemused 
um, reading the article because, as I said, there's no evidence of any of that at the meetings that I've been at. We, we're going to learn the lessons of the local mm. and European elections and learn them quickly. And then we're going to move forward very, very focused. And in fairness, mm. I was at those meetings. He wasn't. Mm. Well, I mean, Daniel McConnell is a, a very respected journalist and he says he's been speaking with uh, senior Sinn Féin members, uh, TDs uh, uh, and others uh, who are calling into question the leadership of Mary Lou MacDonald and the direction that she's taking the party in. Well, I mean, as I said, I have not witnessed any division amongst the parliamentary team, none whatsoever. And isn't that what mm. journalists do? Party spokesperson. No, I don't. You know, party this, but they never, you know. I know, I don't think that's, that's fair what they do. Well, that's what they do. But I'm no. telling you, as I don't somebody, think that's fair at all. I'm telling you, as somebody mm. who's been at the parliamentary mm. meetings, has been at the, the team meetings, yeah. who's up in Leinster House as we speak. No, I know, but Dan- I Daniel McConnell Dan- doesn't just make it up. Team. He doesn't just make it up for the sake of being mischievous to get a headline, as you put it earlier on, or to sell newspapers, as you might put it. All I'm telling you, and I can just tell you honestly, Mike. I have not witnessed any of that. But he's also suggested that the way Sinn Féin has handled uh, allegations of bullying or allegations of uh, child abuse has hurt the party as well. Well, look, to be honest, I suppose there there can be no doubt that headlines, you know, on on these issues and the ones um, in relation to the allegations of sexual abuse and that that we've seen leading up into the election were probably damaging. There's no, you know, there's no doubt about that. Like, you know... Um, okay, so when you say you need to learn from mm. the mistakes, what do you need to learn in respect of those allegations? Well, in relation to the allegations of the sexual abuse mm. in that particular case that was in the media... Paddy McGahan. ...the election, Paddy McGahan, yeah. I mean, we all know that only the Guardian, the PSNI can investigate allegations of, the, of that kind and that's the structures that are there. Well, that, 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 that's not doing anything different then is it? Well I mean that's that's the, it's the job of the Guardi or the PSNI mm. to investigate allegations you know and that's that's their job. Well no Paddy McGann has said he, he wants an in, independent investigation into how Sinn Féin handled it. Yeah, well he's Paddy McGahan's entitled to call for that. If oh, I know, but you said you were going to learn from these things. Yes. And yes, change. And, and when you say yes, you're going to learn from it, it means you're going to do something different. It sounds as though you're going to continue uh, with uh, the same no, attitude the towards what Paddy McGahan no, says. No, it's not that at all. It's The reality is, Mike, that, as I said, the Gardaí and the PSNI are the only ones that can investigate allegations of that nature. That's that's the law. That's that's the fact, you know, and that's 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 as it is. You know, but if, if no, they can't Paddy, Paddy is perfectly entitled to call for an investigation, I think. I think. Uh, well, and, it wasn't the Gardaí that investigated the Catholic Church, was it? They investigated members of the Catholic Church, uh, which would have been mm-hmm. uh, similar to this case. It's the institution. It's the political party. It's how the party uh, reacted uh, collectively, uh, circled the wagons, uh, covered up, uh, and. Uh, dismissed him and his allegations. That's what he wants investigated. Well, he's, he's, Paddy is perfectly entitled to have that investigation, to call for that investigation. I think he'd met with the minister recently or is due to meet with the minister. And that's his right and he's perfectly entitled. That I Do you support him though? Say anything. But of course, if, he's, if he wants that investigation, if he sees a need for it, he's entitled to, to have it. And if he's sought a meeting with the minister, he's entitled to do that. Of course he is. Hmm. 
what next uh, for Sinn Féin? Well, as I said, it's vital that we, we learn the lessons of the election and we learn them quickly. And, you know, at the same time, I suppose we've, we've faced, we'll face the, this challenge the same way that we faced greater challenges. Do you, past, do, you, do, you know, do you think that it's possible that people lent your, their vote to you? Uh, and when Gerry Adams stood down, they thought, oh, look, should we look somewhere else? We look for uh, a left-wing party that uh, we like, uh, that has green policies, and they gave their vote to their, or they're giving their support now to the Green Party. No, I, I, to be honest, um, Sinn Féin is, is a very considerable political force right across the island of Ireland, and we have the policies and solutions mm. on offer to the Irish people um, we just. We so was the Green Party, though, wasn't it? We just. Sorry. So was the Green Party. I mean, they went up five. You went down seven. Yes, but we we've, we've, we're still, a, you know, a, a considerable political force right across the Ireland, and people know that um, which in vain that we we work hard, we never stop working, you know, and like we've we've had days like this, bad days, should I say, like this before, and we'll come back, and we'll okay. come back bigger and stronger, and the way we'll come back bigger and stronger is is by working harder and getting our message across. And there's one thing you can say um, about, I think everybody, even our begrudges would say about Sinn Féin, is that we're not afraid of hard work and commitment, you know, and, and that's, that's what we do. And we work hard to represent the people that we're privileged to be elected okay. to represent. Right. And we'll always work hard and defend them. And it's a case of we're not going to dwell on the, the local and Europeans. Mm-hmm. You know, there's time for reflection in the party, but we'll be moving forward with a positive, focused message for the people that have always placed their trust in us to work hard on their behalf. All right, listen, thanks very much for uh, talking about it with us and for joining us uh, this morning for that matter. Sinn Féin TD for Louth, Imelda Munster. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The Society of St. Vincent de Paul launched its pre-budget submission yesterday calling on the government to invest in a just society. Caroline Fahey is Head of Social Policy with Vincent de Paul and on the line. Good morning, Caroline, and thanks for joining us. Uh, you're calling on the government to benchmark social welfare payments and uh, the minimum wage uh, to the cost of what you're calling a minimum essential standard of living. What is that? Well, I suppose the, the minimum essential standard of living is what it costs to, to be able to afford to all your basics, the things that you need. So our colleagues in the Vincentian Partnership for Social Justice have gone off and costed about 2,000 items, goods and services and found out exactly what they cost and have worked out what it would cost then for everyone, every household, to have a minimum essential standard of living and what, the, what sort of income you need to afford all your basic outgoing. So that would be things like your food, uh, your medical expenses, the cost of your housing, the cost of your childcare. Mm. And we feel that everybody in Ireland should have an income that will allow them to meet those basic needs. Okay, uh, and uh, that would also calculate uh, the living wage. Uh, are you suggesting that social welfare payments should be in line with the living wage? Well, we, I suppose we're, we're not really. What we would talk about, though, when we're talking about the living wage, we talk about the, the national minimum wage, and we feel that that should be approaching the living wage. So again, costs are different, I suppose, for people who are in work and those who are out of work. Um, and the living wage is a really important way of ensuring that people who have jobs are not struggling. One of the things that we're seeing a lot more of now as the economy is approaching full employment um, is the problem of people with jobs who are living below the poverty line and who are not able to make ends meet. Um, so we really need to think about the quality of jobs people are in. Are they low-paid jobs? Are they precarious mm-hmm. jobs? Or are they the kind of jobs that um, you know, provide an income that people can meet all their outgoings? You know, One of the, the most difficult things for our members, I think, is when... you know 
they suggest to someone, oh, you know, have you, you, you might take up a job and the person goes off and finds a job and takes it up, but they're still not able to afford uh, their housing costs, their food costs, their electricity and gas costs and mm. so on. So that's one of the problems that we're seeing now. More. And, uh, I suppose somebody uh, else might be earning less than them and they can because uh, there are a number of factors that have to be taken into account uh, because you've uh, things like uh, the national minimum wage, you've the living wage that you spoke about and there's how many people are, are working in the house and what the household income is. Yeah, yeah, that's really important and I suppose what, what you know what our members would say is that they can be concerned if someone takes up a low paid job um, or, or any job really, I suppose a low or even middle uh, job, middle paying job they can lose a lot of the supports that they would rely on. So, for example, people after a number of years of, of a job might lose their medical card. And we know that the medical card is something that people really, really rely on, um, even if they don't have you know, problems with their health. But it's the security of knowing that, OK, if I need to access medical services, I'm going to be able to access them with my medical card. Um, and, you know, taking up a job, a low-paid job, minimum wage job or that, it doesn't afford you the security. You're not going to be able to afford health insurance. You might end up losing your medical card, and that can be a real difficulty for people. Okay, and the context uh, that you're asking the government to help these people in is that 800,000 people are living below the poverty line. That's an incredible figure, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Now, I mean, in fairness, there has been progress made on that, so the numbers are kind of coming down a bit. And what we're saying is that, actually, if we make the right decisions in the budget, we can reduce the numbers of people in poverty. One of the big scandals, I suppose, that we have is the number of children who are living below the poverty line, so 230,000 children living below the poverty line. But we did see between 2016 and 2017, uh, 25,000 children lifted over that line, um, lifted out of consistent poverty, which is when they're in a household with low income and they're going without basics like heating, uh, adequate food, adequate clothing and that kind of thing. And the reason that that happened was because we did invest a bit more in the social welfare payments. We saw an increase in the minimum wage. We saw an increase in things like the back to school clothing and footwear allowance. And we're seeing more people taking up things like the working family payments and all those supports. If we invest in those, we can actually make a difference. Mm. We can help people in poverty. And all of those supports, as you say, help people. But you also want the government to, to help people to help themselves and to introduce other supports uh, which would uh, allow them to take up education or training. Yeah, that's right. So one of the big things, I suppose, that we're looking at is um, people who might go back for second chance education. You know, maybe they've, they've got their leaving cert and that kind of thing. Maybe circumstances you know, at the time, didn't allow them to go on to third level, but now maybe they're thinking, you know what, I would like to do a course in college. Um, And there's no support there if people want to do it on a part-time basis. So we would hear from a lot of maybe people parenting alone or even parenting in couples or people with jobs who'd like to go back to college um, and improve their skills and education levels. But the cost of it is really expensive because you have to pay the full fees and there's no access to the SUSE grant for part-time students either. So those are two big barriers that we're looking to, to see addressed. Um, the other issue then regarding education, I suppose, is the cost of education. And, and round about this time of year now, I suppose, the primary schools are finishing up school book lists are coming home to people. And we're going to be seeing um, the cost that that puts on parents. You know, that they might be looking for a voluntary contribution. The books are obviously very expensive. So the cost of education at that level um, is something that we want to see the government tackle as well, because it's actually about an underinvestment in our education system and an underinvestment in our schools. And that's why the schools are putting pressure on parents in some cases pay the voluntary contribution and that kind of thing because the school actually doesn't have the funding to provide for the children that it's, it's supposed to be education. So that's a big issue as well. So education at all levels, I suppose. Returning to education for those kind of non-traditional learners and making sure the children who are in school now can fully benefit from that.
Uh, and is it the view of uh, St. Vincent de Paul that the government's number one priority going into the budget should be tackling the housing and homelessness crisis uh, because you're concerned uh, about people who are in uh, emergency accommodation or, or who are yeah. uh, without uh, even such uh, a basic standard or if they're in uh, housing, uh, the standard of housing for that matter? Yeah, that comes up for us so much because I suppose of, of what we do, we visit people in their homes so we can see it firsthand then if people are living in substandard accommodation, which is a big issue, um, um, you know, people living in poorly insulated homes with bad sources of heating. Um, so that's one of the problems we see. And the other thing that we're seeing now regarding housing is just the cost of it. You know, people who might be getting the housing assistance payment are paying top ups of maybe two or three hundred euros a month. And they're prioritizing that all the time to keep a roof over their heads. But of course, if you're on a low income and you're stretched, eventually you're you know and you're prioritizing the housing costs but you're going without other essentials eventually that's going to unravel a bit and people you know are going to find themselves at more risk of homelessness without a proper investment in public housing large-scale development of public housing social housing and affordable housing we're going to continue to see that problem because relying on the private rented sector to meet social housing need is not effective at all it's not working for people and it's exposing the state to a huge cost as well because we have no real rent caps so i mean if we're going to say to landlords, you know, as rent increases, the state will keep picking up the, the tab on that. We're, we're exposing the whole state to that huge cost rather than investing in social housing, which can provide people with secure homes that they can afford and they can kind of base their lives around that, really. OK. Uh, we'll hear more, obviously, before October. Caroline, thank you for joining us this morning, though. Caroline Fahey, Head of Social Policy with the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, back uh, to uh, the government's uh, climate action plan to tackle climate breakdown. There's 183 actions in this and a lot to do with transport, including how one million cars or thereabouts on Irish roads will be electric cars. Obviously, there'll be a rollout of chargers uh, to power them and uh, the sale of petrol and diesel cars will be prohibited uh, from 2030 onwards. Uh, they'll also be increases expected in uh, the cost of uh, petrol and diesel, in particular in uh, the cost of uh, diesel uh, in uh, terms of uh, carbon tax. Let's talk about this with Verona Murphy, who's uh, the president of uh, the Irish Road Haulage Association. Good morning to you, Verona, and thanks for joining us. Uh, What will this mean for drivers of HGVs? Well, look, first of all, I would say that our own budget proposal sent to government for this year would be actually a very green policy. It is our aim to become one of the cleanest fleets of HGV vehicles in Europe. And with that, there are some good, very good points in that climate action plan. Something, Some of them are actually in agreement with what we've proposed ourselves, such as an accelerated capital allowance. For instance, at the moment, the government, over the, their, their, their remit for 2015, is to get rid of all fossil fuels. The problem with that for us is that there isn't an alternative to diesel fuel for the commercial sector. Mm. Now, so where you've got a carbon equalisation tax, it's to promote the people to move to what's cleaner. So they're looking for people to switch from diesel to petrol. That can't happen in the commercial sector. Now, gas is being promoted as a cleaner fuel in the commercial sector. That's fine. There's a slight difference at Euro 6 level for the NOx emissions of gas versus diesel. But the standard of Euro 6 is effectively the same level of emission being emitted as that of a 1.6 petrol car. And why not not move to electric? 
well, we don't have a model of electric. You, you have several factors to consider within the commercial model of a HGV. You've mm. got torque, which means you need the power to pull the load behind you. We pull currently a maximum per- permissible weight of 46 tonnes. That would be probably a load weight somewhere in around 26 to 30 tonnes, depending on the combination of vehicle. But you don't. You need torque for that. We don't. No manufacturer has reached that level of electric. Hydrogen's the same, and gas. Mm. Gas is different in that we have to reduce our carrying capacity because gas takes up more room. But the issue is this. We don't have a gas infrastructure. We are an island nation, and this is something that seriously needs to be considered. Can we export a full gas fleet from the Ireland from the island to take our exports abroad. The answer to that at the moment isn't clarified. We are very dubious of it. We don't have a supporting gas network across Europe that would support what the exchange would be here. But currently we don't even have the gas infrastructure here. Mm. Manufacturers aren't producing enough trucks to allow us to change. Therefore, we don't have any credible, viable alternatives. If the tax is imposed on us and doesn't come back through our fuel rebate mechanism, it means the consumer will pay on the double. So gas is unrealistic and electric is impossible. At the moment, I am very sure in the future we will have credible, viable alternatives. Mm, Currently, but, but we as, don't, and I don't anticipate it as, in the next as, as things years. stand, if you were to have a, an electric truck, the battery would be as big as the truck, would it? Correct. Possibly somewhere in the region of 7 to 10 tonnes. And what you do then is you reduce the load, you put more trucks on the road, and that's what we're trying to avoid. Uh, a credible alternative for us, the cleanest vehicle on the road at mm. the moment is the Euro 6 engine. We are asking government to support our budget proposal to allow us to upgrade to that Euro 6 engine. We will then have the cleanest fleet in Europe. It's very viable. Mm. It is, it's it's Maybe a double whammy so, for it, the consumer because what happens is we reduce our carbon emission uh, fines that we can't mm. comply with. We're suffering. And this is but how, how clean is the cleanest fleet in Europe? Because it calls into question the plan, doesn't it, in that four-fifths of the vehicles on our, our roads will be electric or carbon neutral uh, whereas one fifth about small vehicles you're only yes, talking you're not talking about one, one fifth and the biggest polluters uh, of all of the vehicles will continue to pollute but that's without look at we're in we're in strange times we have brexit to contend with we have the fallout of brexit we you know we do not have profit margins that will allow us absorb the increase in carbon equalization so we're not against carbon equalization but we can't absorb it which mm. means we can only pass it on to the consumer and as a re, as a result of things becoming so expensive you may well see a drop off in people purchasing the consumer can not obviously outlay everything mm. without getting an increase in their pocket. But the point is, as a service industry, Michael, we shouldn't have to pay the same because ultimately we're just going to pass that cost to the consumer as well. But the rest of us are going to be told more uh, is needed, uh, that we have to pay more for diesel. Well, I think you've got to consider that the rest, when you're looking mm. at the car sector and the other road users, first of all, you've got to look at, is there an alternative? Yes, there is. You're being advice. Like, there's lots of factors now. I Mm. believe that this document needs an awful lot more analysis. I mean, readily we've got to understand where's the money going to come from to replace what we currently pay? 
in road tax because currently electric cars are literally road they're free of road tax there is no tolls or there's a reduction in tolls so I mean if you've got a million cars in the mm. next 10 years in electric we are down a lot to the exchequer I mean look it, this is slightly unrealistic but it's a good proposal and we do have to start somewhere there is no point in penalising the service sector because it ultimately serves to penalise the consumer. And that's where our proposal is green. I listened to Joe Healy on the radio this morning and Joe Healy was interviewed at Wexford Local Radio here this Mm. morning. And his interview is about the farmers not being given any credit for their hedgerows. And ultimately, there is, you've got to look at that from the green perspective and the addition of hedgerows to the climate and to the carbon emission sector and how they absorb. It doesn't mean that those hedgerows shouldn't be cut back. But I take his point. In Holland, there are no hedgerows. Okay. That reminds me of Ronald Reagan, actually. Well, as a country, (laughs) we, we, look, we're a small nation. We cannot afford to be... Like, we can be optimistic, and I commend yeah. the plan. It is a step forward. But, but we've got it? to be commercial. Yes, it? it's a step I, forward. I mean, look, at what it is, is, is it's, look, we're in a different time, mm. and we do have to consider But we could publish a, a plan which suggests that we should put a, a man on Mars uh, or, or, or travel to Mars or whatever, and, uh, you know. Whilst that might be laudable, it's not possible. I mean, well, it- this is my point. This mm. plan needs to be looked at. It will be well thrashed out. And as I said, there's a serious question about its viability from the point of view of if, elect- if the current regime of an electric car, we are down a lot to the exchequer, the finances have to be replaced, and where's that going to come from? So always green policies are very, very laudable, but are they commercially viable? And where can we start? Just remember... There are many countries who don't operate any such thing as a green fleet or Euro 6 levels. So we're one little corner in the world and we have got to equate what we can do without breaking the country financially and without having a green policy but no commercially viable entities to support that policy because sometimes it can work against us. And if you look at what policies were there, we now have road tax on new cars at a very reduced level and the penalty is to the person who cannot afford the new car. Strictly speaking, look, it's a lovely policy for somebody who is driving a lovely, clean, new machine, but that's not everybody can afford that. Okay. And that's it's just like the, the fuel and the tax and the home, uh, you know, carbon tax on, on, on home fuel. We have got to look at that and make sure that the poorer people don't suffer as, and are totally disadvantaged. Okay. From a commercial HGV uh, applicable, we will be the greenest fleet and all we need is the government. By the way, Michael, the listeners need to be aware our budget proposal being supported will have a greater effect and a much faster effect than it will if you retrofit houses. All right, we'll come back maybe and talk about that uh, another time, but we've run out of time, and thank you indeed for your time and for joining us this morning. Rona Murphy is uh, the president of the Irish Road Haulage Association and brings our programme to its conclusion. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 